Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 4, verses 4 through 26. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. John chapter 4, verses 4 through 26. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. So as, as Danny said, uh, my name is Eric Weiner. I'm the youth pastor here at Waypoint Church. And, um, and Danny actually, uh, he took, I, so, so I'm a graduate of a Southern Baptist seminary. And so I was going to go ahead and, and right off the bat, you know, we're notorious for our three-point sermons. And I was going to give you a, <coughs> a three-point message here saying, you know, this is why I'm up here today. But, but Danny's already explained to you why, why two of our pastors aren't here. Um, what Danny didn't mention, and what you don't know yet, is that Danny was actually also not supposed to be here. Uh, a, about a month ago, Danny came into my office with, uh, with Josh, and, and uh, you know, they, were, they were having this very serious moment with me where uh, they were like, okay, Eric, you're, you're preaching on June 3rd, and Josh, uh, Josh tells me that he's going to be at the beach of all places uh, because he planned this vacation out, so he says a year in advance. Th those are his words, not mine. 
And then Danny says, I'm supposed to be in San Francisco for work, and I can't get out of it. And so uh, they're almost half-jokingly half thinking of this idea of me being up here kind of on Sunday doing all these things by myself. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a, I'm a pretty even-killed guy. So, uh, so outwardly, I, I hear them telling me these things. I'm like, okay. But inwardly, I'm, I'm, I'm dying a little bit inside. Just at the, at the thought of all these things that, that they're asking me to do. And so, uh, so, so the fact that Danny is here this morning and, and was able to get out of going to San Francisco uh, is, is, is grace to us, grace to all of us. And so um, we just praise God for that. Uh, so if, uh, if, you, if you see Danny after service today, you can tell him thank you for, for making that happen. And, and it's also Danny's birthday this week, so you can wish him a happy birthday. Um, with that said, we can, we can go ahead and, and move on. Um, have you ever considered how some of the most incredible news greets you in the midst of the ordinary? How a few unexpected words can change your disposition about life in an instant. I'll never forget the way my wife broke the news to me of, of her current pregnancy. I was in Bean Traders, so, so maybe Josh is rubbing off on me. I was in, I was in Bean Traders uh, seeking some solitude with the Lord, and, and my wife had snuck this, uh, this index card note in my Bible and so, uh, as, I, as I am pulling out my Bible to, to start reading, I, I'm just curious to know what, what she's written. And so, uh, so, so the, the, this note is, is, is meant to be encouragement. It's, it's uh, encouraging us in, in, our, in our married life so far, and uh, it's just asking, asking for prayer for her as, as a wife and as a mom. And, um, and this, is on the, this is coming, this is in the aftermath of uh, of the marriage conference, so it's like fresh on our minds of, of just like we're, we're working on this, we're working toward this together. And, and, and just to give you some, uh, a little background for us, uh, uh, a common joke that we, that we share together is, uh, so we'll maybe, maybe do this as, as married couples, you, you kind of daydream about what life is going to look like, and, and you think about the future, and you think about parenting, uh, having kids, and so my wife is, is talking about having kids, and she'll say this, she'll say uh, things about having children, and the thing that stands out to me when she says this is kids, like plural, as in more than one, and so I'll correct her, I'll say, uh, uh, you mean kid, because we just, we just have the one child, not two, not just, just one, and so in this note she writes, 14 lines in, mind you. Pray that I would be a patient wife and mom. Pray for our kids. I took a test this morning, and it was positive, that they would grow in the knowledge of the love of the Lord. <laughs> what an adventure we are on. Right in the middle. She just like, doesn't even skip a beat. It's just like a, a, a parenthetical clause in this, in this sentence. And so as you can imagine, just in the midst of this ordinary day, this great news. I mean, I'm literally in a coffee shop crying, and I'm not a crier, and I'm looking up, just making sure that nobody's looking at me as I'm crying, and then I read this note again, and I, I'm just overwhelmed with, with joy at, at this news. And as soon as I, I finally collect myself, I finally gather my emotions, I think, okay, I'm not going to read this again because I'm not going to cry anymore the first thing that my mind goes to, the first thing I think about is, who can I share this with? 
who can I tell this news to? Because it's, it's, it feels too, too good not to share. You see, in the midst of, the, of an ordinary day, surprising news, there's a spring of joy inside of you, and, and you want to share it with, with everyone. And, and, and maybe you find yourself in a room with people you don't even know, and you just want to tell them too. There are likely several moments like this in our lives, of course, with, with varying degrees of joy, varying degrees of, of anticipation. But there's something stunning about the surprising intersecting the ordinary. It just happens. You don't expect it. And when it does, you, you feel this compulsion to act. What you don't do is nothing, right? Well, this morning, we're going to see this kind of intersection, this surprising meeting the ordinary. A Samaritan woman is going to fetch water at a well. Now, that's at, during the heat of the day. And, and that's not ordinary to any of us. I mean, no, none of us go to fetch water at a, at a well, typically. Um, and, and that's not even ordinary for, her, for, for people in her village to go at the heat of the day. But it is ordinary to her. But this time she'll encounter a man she's never met before, and he'll tell her news that will change her life. But since we're only making a quick stop in, in this gospel, uh, I, I just want to make a, a couple of notes about the Gospel of John, just, just so that we're, we're kind of on the same page together. And the first point is, is this. Jesus knows the human heart. Jesus knows the human heart. Jesus knows our thoughts, beliefs, emotions and desires and how those capacities influence our decisions and actions. He knows our spiritual waywardness and he knows the counterfeit places we go to seek fulfillment for those things. Jeremiah 17 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, Jesus knows this. In fact, he takes this very seriously. We need new hearts. He probably takes this more seriously than, than any of us do. He doesn't need anyone to testify about the heart because he, he knows the heart of all people. He knew it with Nathaniel, with Nicodemus, with the Pharisees, with the Samaritan woman. And he knows your heart. He knows you. So Jesus knows the human heart. And the second is this. Jesus is after our hearts. Luke 6.45 says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, the things that Jesus says and does reflect his heart to accomplish the will of God. And Jesus wants us to rightly orient our lives to God because he alone is worthy of our worship. Now, I want to give a disclaimer here. Conversation in the Gospel of John can get confusing. And let me, let me tell you why. When Jesus is talking with, with people on, on several occasions, uh, the things that Jesus talks to them about. Jesus is, is talking about heavenly things, but his hearers are, are talking and only thinking about physical things, and so they, they miss each other. It would be like if, if you were to watch a, a Pixar movie. You know, it's, it's a family-friendly movie. I mean, uh, Pixar's done a great job of, of appealing to a wide audience, and, and maybe even some of you would watch a Pixar movie without kids. I mean, it's typically a kid's movie, but, but it's... And, and so, so Pixar has, uh, it has humor for, for adults, it has content for adults, and it also has content for kids. But it would, it would be like if, 
if the Pixar movie, like, it, it was dependent on, like, the, me the main message of the movie was dependent on you understanding the adult humor or the adult content. The kids would walk away from the movie and be like, what was that about? Like, I, 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 don't, I don't understand. And so, in this gospel, Jesus tends to use phrasing that, that has a double meaning. But because his purposes are different from his hearers, they, they tend to misunderstand. And if we're not careful, we'll also misunderstand. Now, as we look at the text this morning, the first point I want to make is this. Jesus, the Messiah, labors to draw near to us. He endured human frailty, surpassed cultural and religious barriers, and he encountered the richly and clean because he wants us to know that God comes to us desiring people to know and worship him with new hearts in the truth of the gospel. So Jesus goes to Samaria, and this isn't just obligation, obligation based on geography. Jesus is, is he's far too purposeful for that. This seems more like divine necessity. Now you might ask, where, where do you see that? And if you look at verse 3, it, says, it talks about Jesus left Judea for Galilee, and then in verse 4, that he had to go through Samaria. Now, the clearest reading of that seems pretty straightforward, right? I mean, Jesus is leaving Judea for Galilee, and Samaria is in the path. Like, that's, that's along the road. That's on the journey. But I think there's more going on here than that. You see, Jesus wasn't geographically bound to that route. There's another way he could have gone. It's a more roundabout way. It's not the, the most common way that people would travel during that day, but it's called the Transjordan Highway. In fact, on Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem with his disciples, he actually goes the Transjordan route because he's blocked off from the Samarian route. So there's another option he, he could have taken. In addition to that, Jews have a strong aversion for Samaritans. They don't like the, the people of Samaria. They think that they're unclean. And they don't want to associate with them. But then the direct route is also a dangerous route for travelers. There's robbers on the way. And so, so there's, there's risk involved. But you see, God doesn't take risks. And so when John says, and he had to pass through Samaria, I don't think he means, and he was bound to. I think, rather, he means he needed to. It was necessary. In fact, the Greek wording suggests that it was, it was necessary for Jesus to go to Samaria, which makes us ask this natural question of, why was it necessary? And I believe the answer is that Jesus is being incredibly purposeful and personal. He's seeking to accomplish the Father's will by drawing near, and the Father willed for Jesus to go to Samaria. I don't think this, is, this encounter is a matter of happenstance. I think it's, it's divine will. Verses 23 and 24 say that the Father is looking for people to worship him, him in spirit and truth. Meaning there will be a day when true worshipers will be identified by their belief that Jesus is the Messiah. And so I believe the Father is seeking out the Samaritans to worship him. And his strategy for reaching them is going to this well and encountering this Samaritan woman. Ultimately, this is a, it's a matter of worship. God desires people to know and worship him. And worship is a matter of the heart. We were made to be in a relationship with God. Either we love God and seek to, to make much of Jesus, or we choose to live lives for ourselves and for our own glory. The first expresses the Godward heart, and the latter, the wayward heart. John Piper defines Godwardness as every moment, every act is from God, 
through God, and for God. So the Godward life seeks to live all of life to the glory of God in the name of Jesus in gratitude. But Paul tells us in Romans that, that the wayward heart suppresses the truth about God. They have darkened hearts and futile minds. They don't honor God. Instead, they choose to worship the creature over the creator. And so they stand to rival God. That's the wayward heart. But what we know about Jesus' coming and dwelling among us is that he came while people were yet sinners, meaning wayward. So what we can learn from, from what Jesus is doing here is that waywardness doesn't deter Jesus from coming. In fact, it's the reason for his coming, to address waywardness with salvation. Because Jesus is making it possible for man to be with God, and God is willing this through the work of his Son. So there's an appointment involved here. Even if the one he's coming to, even if the one he's meeting, doesn't know he's coming. Now Jesus is laboring through a lot of barriers here. You have cultural, religious, ethnic, moral. Let me fill you in on, on the reality of, of Jewish-Samaritan relations. Uh, a quick history lesson, if you will. Under the reign of King David, Israel was, was a united kingdom. But they were divided quickly after, after Solomon's reign. Israel in the north, the northern kingdom, and Judah in the south. And Samaria was named capital of Israel, which, which later referred to the entire northern region. And Israel was, was eventually, uh, eventually conquered by the Assyrian people in 722. And so, what do you do with a conquered people? At this point, if, 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 you're, if you're placed in the biblical narrative, you're, you're thinking, well, you exile them. You exile them, right? And that's right, you, you exile them. So you remove a portion of the population, and then you insert foreigners into Samaria, which is, which is what the Assyrians did. These, these pagan peoples intermarry with the people left in Samaria, which, which also meant the adoption of many non-Jewish practices, many ungodly practices. To the point that, that D.A. Carson refers to Jewish-Samaritan relations, that Jews see Samaritans as half-breeds. They're less than. There are people we don't deal with. And so, religiously, Samaritans, they elect to erect a temple at, at Mount Gerizim to worship God, which is, which is probably close to where this, this well is. And they, uh, they, they reject any of the biblical account that tied worship of God with Jerusalem. They accepted only the, t the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, as authoritative, which will be important. And so from a Jewish perspective, Samaria is where the heretics live. Jewish law in the day of Jesus stated that Samaritans were in a state of ritual impurity. For Samaritan women in particular, they were regarded as, as impure in perpetuity, meaning always, always impure, always unclean. And what do you do with a people like that? You avoid them. You certainly don't associate with them. So Jews don't share with Samaritans because it's a matter of their purity. It's a, it's a matter of worship. Now, what is the significance of Jacob's well? I think the first point that we, that we can draw from this and Jesus' uh, what, what's happening with Jesus is, is that we're seeing that Jesus is, is fully God and fully man. And we're seeing his human frailty. He got, he got tired. Jesus got weary. He was thirsty. I think Jesus is also doing something here that's incredible. You see, Jesus is going to use a physical necessity to point to a spiritual one. 
Now, there's no explicit biblical account explaining the origins of this well, but Genesis 48:22 seems to make reference to this land that, that Jacob gave to Joseph as an inheritance. And it's believed that Jacob dug this well for his family and that it's been used by the Samaritans who descended from Jacob. And so as you see, Jacob is highly revered by these people. If you remember back in, in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, God is not ashamed to be associated with Jacob. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, so is this well high, highly revered. Up to this point, Jacob, so Jacob's well is given as a gift. Up to this point, it has sustained the Samaritans for thousands of years. So for this woman and for the Samaritan people, this water isn't luxury. This is necessity. This is a way of life for them. Most of us probably don't grow concerned about our daily needs. They're easily assumed. I mean, we're a pretty affluent people. We don't, we don't grow concerned about having enough to eat or drink, having shelter and clothing. But, but even, if, even if they weren't, Jesus is saying there's something more essential to life. And it's not bread and water. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And John says that Jesus is that word. Jesus is life. And so Jesus labors to draw near, even willingly going to a people that Jews don't mix with, because he's after people to worship God. Jesus has come to reorient our worship to God, and, and that includes this woman, and it includes you. He's come to reorient your worship to God, and he's already done it. Now, one of the amazing things about all of this is that Jesus, the Messiah, offers a sure and superior source of life. And this is grace to us because Jesus is showing that he's willing to identify with us. And he makes that clear because he's willing to identify with this woman. Now, the sentiment we get from reading verses 7 through 9 is that this interaction doesn't happen. A Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman, this is something that, that, that does not happen. This is unexpected. But when we get her cultural context even more, we realize for this Samaritan woman, this is, this is incredibly surprising to her. You see, it was custom for women to travel during the cool of the day to collect well water. So, so usually you'd go in, in the morning time or uh, maybe after the sun sets, and, and you'd go in groups. I mean, you wouldn't travel alone. I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, it's, it's dangerous. And so this was a daily, a daily routine because they were only able to carry enough water for a day's worth of, of drinking and cleaning and bathing. And so the fact that she's alone during the heat of the day isn't a matter of impracticality. As, as Jesus sheds light on for us later, it's a matter of immorality. And so as we've established, Jews don't associate with Samaritans because they staunchly oppose their beliefs and lifestyle. But I want to draw your attention to a phrase in verse 9. In the ESV, it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And it's clearly a cultural clue given as an aside, but the, the wording seems kind of odd. I mean, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I mean, we, we wouldn't say that to describe our, our relationship with anyone. We wouldn't say, say, I have no dealings with person A. We, we would say, you know, we, like we're not friends or, or we don't hang out. Or maybe if it's a family member, we'd say, uh, we're estranged. But, but even that seems to not really fit what, what, what's happening here. And so, I mean, if, if you look at the, I mean, even in verse 8, it says that, that G Jesus sends his disciples 
to the Samaritan village to, to get food. So it's not like there's never any Jewish-Samaritan interaction. I mean, clearly there's something. So what does it mean when it says Jews don't have dealings, like they don't associate with these people? Well, the way Jewish ceremonial laws work, if person A is, is clean and person B is unclean, then person A is going to stay away from person B. Person A is not going to have anything to do. In fact, person B that is an unclean person, they're going to be kept outside of the city because uh, lest they, they make anybody else unclean. Because if you, if you touch uncleanness, you become unclean. And so their uncleanness is passed on. And so they become social outcasts. Now, we don't have anything quite as extreme as that. I mean, if somebody has a really, really crazy illness that we don't know what to do with. We might, we might put them in the hospital. We might quarantine them until we figure out how to, how to deal with it. But even, even on a smaller level, we might do this. I mean, if, if my wife is sick and she's contagious, then, I mean, I'm, I'm going to do the best I can to, to care for her at a distance <laughs> because I love her and, and I want her to get well, but I also don't want myself to get sick. And so... I'm going to give her the space she needs, the, the sleep that she needs. I'm going to give her food and water, make sure that she has everything that she needs. But you know what we're not going to do? And you know what you wouldn't do either with your loved ones if, if they're sick and contagious? You're not going to eat after them. You're not going to use their same fork. And you're not going to drink from their cup. I mean, I'm not going to share my water with my, my sick, contagious wife. You just don't, you don't do that. Because you don't want to get sick. I mean, you know that germs can spread. You, you don't want to get the uncleanness. You don't want to get the sickness. And Jesus has encountered this woman who's one of a group of people considered unclean. And they've ostracized her. And so do you see the, do you see the degrees of uncleanness, the degrees of rejection here? From a Jewish perspective, Jews reject the Samaritans. And the Samaritans reject this woman. And so Jesus is going to the rejected of the rejected to say, I can make you clean. You see, there's an amazing chasm here between Jesus' holiness and her own. And, and this woman, she is both surprised and she's confused. She's surprised that Jesus is asking her for water. And she's confused that he's offering her water with no way to draw it. She's very aware of the physical, cultural, ethnic chasm here. But Jesus is showing her that her surprise and confusion is so underwhelming. Jesus replies, if you knew who I really was, you'd be asking me for water. In other words, you're surprised about the wrong thing. You shouldn't be astounded that a Jew associates with you. If you knew who I really was, you would be amazed that God does. In fact, Jesus has gone to great lengths to associate with this immoral, unclean Samaritan woman. He came at the heat of the day because she comes at the heat of the day. He's willing to toil to get to Jacob's well, just like she toils to this well. He's willing to be tired, weary, and thirsty because she gets tired, weary, and thirsty. And he says, let me drink from your bucket. And I think this gets at his purpose, and it reminds us of the surprising nature of God's grace. 
You see, Jesus came while we were yet sinners to drink from our filthy cups of uncleanness and judgment so that we might share in the inheritance of Christ if we would believe in him. And so Jesus is taking her separation because he knows that it is the only way for what is lost and wayward to truly be found and restored. Jesus is the Messiah who goes to places that don't make sense, to people that are rejected, and says, you can be reconciled to God through me. Now, when he asks to drink from her bucket, he's not only saying, I'm willing to deal with your uncleanness. He's saying, I intend to. I intend to. Some of us today think that we're not thirsty, and I'm not talking about physical thirst. Others of us recognize our thirst, but we're, we're constantly making this trek out to broken cisterns. We think, this will sustain. But Jesus says, on the contrary, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Back in January, the New York Times posted an article about a historic moment in the history of Yale University. A class this past semester had the largest student enrollment in Yale's 316-year history, 1,182 students. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not a teacher. I've never been a professor. I can't imagine the logistical nightmare that that would be, but that's just an aside. You want to know what that class is called? Psych 157. psychology and the good life. Some of the best and brightest students in the world are craving happiness. I mean, these are, these are very intelligent people. These, I mean, and and they're, they're spending thousands of dollars to get this very prestigious education. Now, do you think any of them would take this class because they, they already know all the material? I mean, isn't that why you seek to take a class, to, to learn something you don't yet know? So I take this to mean they, these students don't know how to live the good life. 1,182 students. In fact, if you're, if you're jealous, there's actually a way that you can, you can take this course online now. So this is open to you. This is open to the public. So this isn't just a, a 19 to, or 18 to 22 year old problem. I think this is a, this is a societal, this is, this is global. People are craving happiness. And they don't know how to find it. And so I take this to mean that they're trying to learn something they don't know. One student enrolled in the class told the New York Times, in reality, a lot of us are anxious, stressed, unhappy, numb. The fact that a class like this has such a large interest speaks to how tired students are of numbing their emotions, both positive and negative, so they can focus on their work, the next step, the next accomplishment. And so there seems to be a detachment here Surely these students have lofty life aspirations, but they're finding that the end result isn't leading to real happiness. I can drain all of my abilities to achieve, but achievement doesn't lead to something that's, that's long-lasting, that's permanent. There's always the next thing. And that's what I hear these students saying. And so they thirst. They're constantly craving, but, but never satisfied. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, Always winter, but never Christmas. Always longing, but never joy. What we need is a better water supply. What we need is a, a better place to, to fill our buckets. 
And, and in my attempts to, as I'm trying to bridge this, this sermon gap between Hebrews and, and Ephesians, uh, this is my attempt to, for you guys. Jesus gives a better supply of water than Jacob because Jesus is better than Jacob. In verse 10, living water has a double meaning. To the woman, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's fresh, dynamic, spring flowing water as opposed to uh, stagnant water contained in a, in a pool or cistern, which she's going to draw water from. But we know Jesus isn't talking about physical water. He's talking about eternal life because he mentions that the water is the gift of God. And so Jesus is talking about something this woman has no knowledge of. Because Samaritans only have knowledge of the Torah. But Jesus isn't talking about the Torah. Jesus is talking about the prophets. The prophet Jeremiah in particular. In Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13, the God of Israel speaks of himself as the fountain of living waters, which the people have rejected in favor of broken cisterns. So living water means the endless supply of God's grace. This is the living water. This is the gift of God that if you knew, you would ask for. So here's what this woman is asking, and, and this is what I believe we also ask Jesus. The first is this, do you want what he's offering? Do you want this water? Do you want this life? Is your water better than Jacob's? And two, do you believe he can deliver on what he's promising? Do you believe that he can provide this water? How will you give me this water? You have no bucket. Before we jump into Jesus' response, let me, let me say this. Let, let's say, hypothetically speaking, that this woman was, was some, I mean, there's, there's thousands of year gap between this woman and Jacob. But let's say, hypothetically speaking, she was able to meet Jacob at this well. Because of what this man built, she and her family and her community have been sustained for generations after generations after generation. Can you imagine the gratitude and reverence just by being in the presence of, of that man? I think she would fall on her knees in a posture of worship. She would worship Jacob. She would be so grateful. So do you hear her heart when she asks, are you better than Jacob? Do you hear the sarcasm? Do you hear the skepticism? Do you, do you look at the fruit of what Jacob has done? Do you really think that you could provide something better? Now keep in mind, she doesn't know who this is Jesus. This is just a stranger to her. But Jesus' claim is that he provides a better gift than what Jacob gave. The gift of God provides a superior water because it sustains life without end. That means the source is deeper than this well because the stream is endless. Descendants of Jacob drinking from this well die. But anyone who drinks from the fount that Jesus offers live Yes, Jesus is better than Jacob because he offers a better source of water that yields salvation, life. In verse 15, this woman says, Sir, meaning she's still in the dark about who Jesus is. She still doesn't know. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I think that last clause exposes what she really desires. She wants this water to satisfy her needs as she sees them. This is good news to her. What Jesus is saying is good news to her because it, it provides a better way to hide the shame. Jesus knows her needs, however, need to be satisfied as he sees them. 
She's spiritually dead. I mean, she, she can't imagine what true life is like. She has no idea. Jesus knows she's thirsty in need of the gift of God. Endless grace. She just wants to improve her fallen condition. This water is her ticket. It's an improved way to mask the shame. I don't have to come to this well anymore. I don't have to deal with the ostracism. I don't have to deal with this being a social outcast, feeling like people are constantly judging who I am. Do you think she wants to come to this well at this time of day? She has to. So if you're saying you can offer water and, and that, that I don't have to keep coming here, then give it to me. That's why I'll take your water. Not because of what Jesus is offering, but because of what she would rather have. But Jesus is talking about God's riches at his expense. And so I want to end by, by quickly answering two questions for us. Jesus is offering a better gift of endless water to satisfy our thirst. And so the first question is, how do we know that Jesus is able to deliver on his promises? How do we know he can do it? And the second is, how do we know that this Samaritan woman received the gift? If she can receive it, then so can we. The answer to this first question can be found in verses 23 through 23. Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so the Samaritan woman rightly determines that Jesus' knowledge of her must be from God. I mean, Jesus hasn't, as we saw in, in, in verse 16, Jesus hasn't gone into uh, Samaria. He hasn't gone into Sychar to uh, do some recon work to figure out the, the life story of this woman and then address her at this well. So she, she's right in, in saying, you, you must be a prophet. I mean, you're talking about things that only God would know. And so you must be a prophet. And so she immediately turns, she tries to uh, sidestep the, the question that Jesus is asking to ask this question that's caused much strife between Jews and Samaritans. Where, where's the right place to worship? I mean, the Samaritans, we, we say that it's here at Mount Gerizim, but the, the Jews say that it's in Jerusalem. So, so who's right? That's what we all want to know. And, and Jesus says, well, the Jews are right. It's, it's in Jerusalem. I mean, salvation is from the Jews. But Jesus says that he's doing a new thing. And so he mentions his, com his hour coming and is now here. Tim Keller points out that any time in the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about his hour, it's always referring to the cross. It's always referring to his death. You can worship God in spirit and truth. In other words, you can worship God by seeing and believing everything that Jesus will do. So Jesus is saying, look to the cross. So let's do that. While on the cross, this is, this is John 19, 28. Uh, says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. You see, Jesus was sent out of the city, burdened by wound and were toiling to the place of the skull to be executed. And the world would have you believe that this, by physical standards, was human force. Don't miss this. This is Jesus accomplishing the will of God. Jesus takes our thirst, our separation and condemnation. He says, thirst no more. This is how we know he can do it. He takes our thirst in our place, and through him, we receive his standing as righteous before God. So look to the cross and believe.
Two, how do we know that this woman believed him? How do we know she received the gift? In verses 25 and 26, the Samaritan woman responds to Jesus by saying, our people are still waiting for that Messiah to come. He will tell us all things. And Jesus tells her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the Messiah she's been waiting for. And she deserved to know this. She deserved to know. And so he went to her. Now look at verses 28 and 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Which is Greek for Messiah. Can this be the Christ? She finally gets it. You see, people who thirst, they need buckets. But people who are thirsty no more, they don't need buckets. John says, she left her water jar and went. Now, I don't presume to know what you find yourself toiling over this morning. Maybe it's your effectiveness as a parent, or the strength of your marriage, or the size of your ministry, or the success of your career, the health of your GPA, the size of your retirement checks. But if there is now no more condemnation in Christ, there's no more separation from God. And so as we move toward the Lord's table this morning, I invite you, drop the bucket. Now, that doesn't mean the daily challenges you face are removed, but it does dramatically change your outlook on them. And when you really get that, when you taste the freedom of that, it's like a fount of joy springing up inside of you. It galvanizes you. Jesus is the Messiah who thirsts, and he thirsts for you that you might have eternal life. Will you trust him? Will you believe? Pray with me.